Many of you know me. My name is James Locke, and I have been a member at Grace Bible since 2009. My wife and I have been blessed tremendously by our local church, having gone through many struggles here, including cancer treatments, near-death experiences, the raising of our first three children for almost their entire lives, and even for introducing us to our fourth child that was adopted just a few years ago. Life in this body has been a blessing beyond measure. For those of you that have known me since 2009, I have two things to say. First off, I am sorry. When I came to Grace, I had grown up with a reasonable understanding of God's word, but I also came with a brash attitude, an abrupt manner, and a confrontational spirit. Part of that was having grown up in New Jersey, but a much larger part of that was just that I was a selfish sinner, focused on my own thoughts and opinions. The second thing I'd like to say to those dear people that have been here the whole time, thank you for demonstrating Christ-likeness to me. Thank you for setting an example that over time showed me what biblical character looks like when put into practice. Thank you for patiently enduring with me as God worked to change, refine, and mature me. I truly do appreciate it. For those of you who haven't been at Grace that long, I want to let you know that Grace is a special place. There are no perfect people here, and the number of sinners is large. But these are people that genuinely desire to know God. They love his word and are willing to faithfully walk alongside other sinners as we get to know Christ better. And I am thankful for that. It has truly been a blessing beyond measure for me and my family to have a home like Grace Bible Church. Last year, my wife and I were asked to go to Kenya, Africa to partner with a mission that GBC supports there. And we planned on being in Nairobi for a month. We realized that this was likely a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so we took all our children that were living at home with us, and for most of the month, life was actually very similar to living here as we went about our daily routine just in a, a much, much different location. But there was a three-day holiday that came around, and I didn't have to work, so we decided to do something that you can only really do when you're in a place like Kenya. We decided to go on safari. We didn't do a, an extravagant safari. We scheduled a, a half day in one of the national parks, and we had no experience, no context with which to plan a trip like that for ourselves. So we reached out to a friend that recommended an experienced tour guide. Thankfully, the tour guide was much more experienced than we were. He knew the best parks to go to. He knew the various prices, the best times of day, and he had a vehicle that could take us so we could travel comfortably and, more importantly, safely. When we got to the park, this was not like a drive-through safari. This was the absolute wilderness, just smaller than, than all of Chesterfield County, essentially no paved roads, and our guide 
needed to know where to take us. As you can imagine, each of the animal groups had their own behaviors, and they, they hung out in different areas, often far apart from each other. He knew how not to get stuck and how to keep us safe. And let me tell you, it was amazing. We saw some different animals, and, and he would tell us about them, and he gave us insights about each animal that we saw, things that we had never even heard or, or knew about. We saw rhinos and gazelles and, and crocodiles and hippos and lions and, and zebras and giraffes and monkeys. We even got to see a lion hauling off a zebra carcass that it had just killed. And I will let you know, I was really impressed. It was like watching a National Geographic special, but in ultra high definition, stereo sound, real life. The things we got to see and experience were amazing. And it was even better because I was with my wife and kids, and I think I will always, Lord willing, remember being on safari with them. But it wouldn't have been possible without the tour guide. Not even a little bit. I had no capacity to do those things on my own. The tour guide made it happen. He was, to put it colloquially, the man. But something struck me as I was preparing for this sermon about John the Baptist that I had never realized up until recently. As I recall that experience, I have no idea what that tour guide's name was. As sorry as I am to say it, if I met him on the street, I wouldn't recognize him. He served an incredibly important purpose for my family. He was central to one of the most memorable experiences we will likely ever have. But he wasn't the focus of my attention. And I'm thankful for that. If we had gotten inside the park and started to drive around, and for six hours he told us about his family and his background, and I got to know his children, I might have made a friend, but I wouldn't have known anything about what I came to see the tour guide did an excellent job at facilitating my trip, making sure that we could focus on what was important. He didn't ask to be in our pictures. He didn't talk when we were focused on what was happening. He was content to let us focus on the reason that we came there, to see the animals. The very attribute of him not being the center of attention, but pointing our attention elsewhere, that is what made him excellent at his calling. As we go into our text in John 3 today and hear about John the Baptist, there will be some striking similarities between him and my tour guide. You see, both knew that they weren't supposed to be the center of attention. John the Baptist was a prophet, but he knew he wasn't the main attraction. He was content at pointing people to what really mattered, Jesus. That is why he was there. That was his role. And he was content, even joyful, to be able to fulfill the role that God had for him. John's reaction to seeing Jesus' ministry was different than that of John's disciples. And I want to compare and contrast these two reactions in today's text from John 3, 22 through 26. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. 
because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. In the text, you have Jesus. Previously, he had been in Jerusalem where he had his discourse with Nicodemus earlier in this chapter, and he's now gone into the countryside to spend time with his disciples, and they have been baptizing people. Jesus was not baptizing. You can see that in the next chapter, but Jesus' disciples had started to baptize. We also see John baptizing, and while he was not in the same exact area, they, they weren't too far away, likely about a day's walk, give or take. And to be clear, the baptizing that's happening in this passage is not the same baptism that we practice today. Outwardly, it looked similar, but this baptism was being used as an outward sign as to the repentance from sin, not of the outward sign of new life in Christ, the way we see it today. Our baptism signifies death and resurrection, both of Jesus and the death of our old self and our new life in Christ. As an interesting point in verse 23, John had chosen this location because water was plentiful there. This would certainly be consistent with the practice of baptism by immersion. If you're going to baptize a lot of people, you needed a lot of water. If you were sprinkling or using a small amount of water per person, any well or water source would have sufficed even for a huge number of people. At this point in history, John the Baptist and his disciples have had a very successful ministry. Everybody in Israel likely knew about John the Baptist. Everybody talked about him, the, the strange prophet out in the desert proclaiming that the Messiah was coming. We know that the crowds... The Pharisees, even Herod, was quite aware of who John the Baptist was. John the Baptist had built quite the reputation. And as would have been typical of a prophet or a rabbi that was very prominent in the day, he had followers or disciples that believed in his message, that followed him and helped him in his ministry. They had likely spent a lot of time serving John. They sacrificed of themselves. They were faithfully doing God's work. They were helping John the Baptist call people to repentance, which was a good thing. In verse 25, we see that there arises some issue about purification that a Jew brought up. We have no specific insight into what the issue was, but perhaps it was whether this Jew should be baptized by John if he was already baptized by Jesus. We don't know for certain, but we do know that when John's disciples come to John, they are concerned about what Jesus is doing. They know that Jesus' disciples are baptizing people too, and, and they come to John the Baptist, and you can almost hear their whining voices. Rabbi, look at him. Look over there. They are baptizing, and all are going over there. This term, all, was the equivalent of saying, Everybody, everybody is going over there. They should have been rejoicing that the Messiah had come, which John the Baptist had told them had happened. 
Two chapters earlier in John 1, 29, John sees Jesus approaching, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He goes on to say, This is the one I was speaking about. This is the one I said was coming. John's disciples would have heard that. But instead of rejoicing that somebody else was going about the work of calling people to repentance, instead of focusing on the fact that John said he wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals, they were concerned about their position being jeopardized. The disciples of John the Baptist exaggerate the situation to show the danger in their mind. Everybody is going over there. Hey, somebody else is getting the attention. Do something, John the Baptist, or, or, or we may become irrelevant. This reaction of John the Baptist's disciples is concerning, and let us consider how we might draw some application from their example to our own lives. I'd like us to consider two admonitions for today, two ways to ensure that you don't fall into the trap that John's disciples did. First, don't allow any activity, even religious activity, to become your focus instead of God. Believers are inundated with the chance to pursue all kinds of different activities. Some activities are, are clearly wrong, bar hopping, immoral relationships, criminal activity. But many other activities are normally seen as good or healthy or even admirable. These activities may include spending time with family, serving at the church, helping out those in need, or even going to work. None of those activities is morally wrong in and of themselves. They are even considered good and godly pursuits just as the ministry of baptism for the repentance of sin was a good focus for the disciples of John the Baptist. However, when their focus on the activity overshadowed their focus on God and his message, that is when it went astray. And this can happen in our lives as well. John's disciples became so preoccupied with their activities, baptizing people, that they lost focus on, that they didn't have time for the message that John was proclaiming. A Messiah is coming, and he has arrived. They had such tunnel vision and became so busy going about what they thought was important, their tasks, their activities, their ministry, that they missed John clearly saying, hey, look, there is the Messiah. Those disciples missed the main point the main attraction because they were so focused on activities instead of being focused on God. And this attitude is not pleasing to God. As believers today, we can easily fall into this trap. And the activities that we can become focused on are, are not wrong in and of themselves. Just like John's ministry of baptizing people was good in the beginning. Where those things turn dangerous is when the activities start becoming the focus. You see, the goal of our lives as Christians isn't to accomplish activities. It isn't to cook meals, to serve our families, 
or to even be in fellowship with other believers at a worship service. The purpose of our lives isn't to, to serve in the nursery, to read our Bible 30 minutes a day, to be on our knees in prayer, or to feed the hungry. The purpose of our lives is to glorify God and to bring honor and praise to him. We do this by being faithful to Jesus' teaching, by building up other believers and discipling those that believe that they might be more mature in knowing about Jesus. Now, part of how we bring glory to God may include many of those activities that I just mentioned. Attending church, serving others, caring for our families, absolutely. But those activities should never become our primary focus. We need to make sure that we each stay focused on what really matters, living lives that bring glory to God, not simply being busy in doing good things. Because when we become too busy and we become focused on activities, even though they may have been good at one point, it takes our eyes off of what really matters. We start to become concerned about the success of our activity. We probably are each tempted to go astray in this area a little bit differently, but perhaps we become so focused on keeping a clean house that we end up not entertaining guests at all. Maybe that happens even with the couple that desperately needs fellowship and encouragement, but we don't invite them over because we've never finished the task of cleaning our house. Perhaps our days are, are so packed full of activities that we can't take time to encourage or build up a brother or sister in Christ because, you know what, my schedule's packed and I need to get home to get my 30 minutes of Bible reading in because if I don't, I'm going to fall behind on the reading plan and that will mess up the Facebook group and, and that just can't happen. Perhaps I avoid hearing God's word preached on Sunday morning because the need is too great in the nursery or Sunday school or, or maybe I just want to talk to my friends in the foyer. Perhaps I spend so much time on loving my family through activities such as sports, dance lessons, vacations and school projects that I just never quite get around to having my children by my side as I minister and proclaim the gospel to others. We should not allow any activity, even religious activity, to overtake our focus and become more important than focusing on God. John the Baptist was proclaiming a message that would transform the world, but his disciples made their activities the highest priority. They assigned a value and importance to an activity that God never intended. God intended the baptism for, uh, for the repentance of sins to be an outward sign of an individual's commitment to repent. The repentance was always the important part. The baptism was just an outward sign of that. But the people involved in the baptizing started to put an unholy importance on the activity. And once they did that, all of a sudden, when their ministry activity was threatened, they got all concerned and flustered. They lost their focus. The activities had become their idol, what they worshipped and what they cared most about. The second warning that I have from you from this passage essentially just takes the first warning a little bit farther. 
Beware when sinful behaviors present themselves in the guise of pursuing righteous activities. You see, John's disciples had been doing a good righteous activity, baptizing individuals. There was nothing wrong with that. But when their focus shifted from John's message to those activities, they lost their balance. Once they became distracted, things went badly. All of a sudden, they felt justified in lying and exaggerating a situation to protect their ministry. They went to John the Baptist and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and, and all are going to him. They were jealous. And their jealousy took root, and then they started exaggerating and lying. All, the term that is used, means just that, the totality. Every single one. Every single one is going to Jesus, they said. This Greek term was used later in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That term all means everybody was that true? Was everybody going to Jesus and ignoring John? No. We know that that isn't true because the text says that John was still baptizing people. But the disciples were so focused on their activities that they felt that jealousy, exaggeration, and lying were acceptable. Why? Because they were involved in important, holy work. We sometimes can have this happen to ourselves. There are times when we become so focused on our pursuits, on our own important activities, that we feel justified in sinning to protect that which we hold dear. We don't typically recognize it as sinning at the time, but it happens. For instance, when we see ministry happening that, that we aren't involved in, that we don't have a say in, that doesn't make us feel important or valued. We can become upset, disappointed, frustrated, or withdrawn. Have you ever seen the ministry of the word go forth and reacted poorly because it wasn't your ministry or being done the way that you wanted it to? I will admit, I have fallen into that trap. I would see other people get opportunities to preach or teach or, or to go to a conference or to do some important task. And instead of rejoicing that the ministry of the church was going forth, I would become disheartened that I wasn't involved, that I wasn't asked. In essence, although I wouldn't have said it at the time, I was upset that I wasn't the center of attention, even though Jesus was being glorified. And that is sad. It is sinful, and that attitude is detrimental to a healthy church. We all have to guard against the attitude of being self-focused, self-centered to the extent that we, we don't rejoice when we see good things happening in the kingdom of God, when we see God's word being proclaimed, when we see Jesus being glorified by others. So often, we want to be the center of attention. We want to make sure that our view is heard, that our voice is listened to. We want our needs and desires to be satisfied. And we do this at work. We do this within our families. And we do this within the church. Just as an example, one of the ways that I have seen this come out in multiple churches is people's view on music. 
People have very strong, very passionate views about what kind of music should be played in church. Some want only traditional music and hymns. Some want only contemporary music and drums. Some want it loud and powerful, and others want it soft and heavenly. And none of those preferences are wrong. But when people start grumbling, complaining, griping about the volume of the drums, the type of music, or, or some other aspect of the music that they end up entertaining sin in their life instead of rejoicing that the people of God are worshiping, it is not a good thing. When we gather corporately, should my primary focus be on what makes me comfortable, what makes it better or easier for me? Or might it be more appropriate for us to have open eyes, to see what is happening around us, to rejoice if the word is being proclaimed, even if it is in a format that isn't what I might prefer. To cry out to God with thanksgiving, that exalting, God-honoring worship is being offered, even if it isn't my style of music. Have you ever been frustrated that another family would, would have the gall to let their young children stay in the worship center and distract you from praying or listening to the sermon? Have you ever done that and felt grumbly inside? Have you ever been jealous of, of somebody else's recognition of ministry that they have done and you become upset because your contributions weren't recognized in some way? Now, maybe you can't think of any way in which you struggle with these selfish issues that distract you away from God's work. If so, Praise God that you don't struggle in this area. However, I struggle with certain things like this. I have to constantly be on the guard to watch my heart. That sinful behavior does not sneak into my life and I allow it because I justify it as having been part of some noble purpose or righteous cause because that is never acceptable. Now, I would like to spend some time contrasting the reaction of John the Baptist with his reaction to encountering Jesus' ministry with the reaction of his disciples. His disciples were worried, concerned, and they acted sinfully that somebody was impacting their activities. Let us see how John the Baptist responded to that same situation. John 3, 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John recognizes that if anything good is happening, it is happening due to the grace of God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, 
who does not change like shifting shadows. John testifies in verse 27, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He then goes on in verse 28 to point out what his disciples should already know. You yourselves bear witness, he says, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. John recognizes his relationship to Christ. He recognizes that he is not the main attraction. He says, I am not the Christ. He then goes on to discuss this picture of a best man at a wedding. The term used here is friend of the bridegroom. A very important role in that day that had a huge amount of responsibility. He says, hey, I know I'm only the best man. I'm not the important one. The one with the bride, he is the important one. I'm, I'm just a servant. I get joy by being a servant, by being the best man. And when the groom arrives, that is what will bring me joy. So here we have John the Baptist clearly explaining that he is not the Christ, that he was sent before the Christ, and that he will rejoice when the Christ arrives. The very next words out of his mouth at the end of verse 29, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John isn't trying to hide his meaning. He isn't being obtuse or secretive. He tells his disciples, hey, I'm not the center of attention. Christ is. I will only get joy when Christ arrives. Oh, and by the way, now I am rejoicing. My joy has been made complete. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had arrived. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world in John chapter 1. John the Baptist isn't frustrated at all that Jesus' ministry was becoming preeminent. John knows that the whole point of his ministry was that he was sent to point the way to Jesus. And then he gives one of the greatest lessons in humility in the entire Bible. He must increase, but I must decrease. With these words, you would have the testimony of John the Baptist, who, by the way, was a pretty special guy. Matthew 11, 11 captures Jesus saying, Among those born of women has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So you have the greatest man who was ever born saying, Listen, I am nothing. My whole purpose is to point people to the Messiah, to Christ. I, I must decrease. He is the one that is important. He is the one that needs to be the center of attention. He must increase. I want us to consider two lessons or applications that we can take away from the reaction of John the Baptist. John recognized that he is not the center of attention. He is not the main attraction. Jesus is. John had a lot of visibility. All of Israel was aware of who John was. He, was. he very easily could have been in a position to have everybody focus their intention on John, but he knew that wasn't his role. He recognized that he was inferior. 
that he was subservient, that he was less than him that he came to proclaim. John clearly testified to his disciples, I am not the Christ. John knew he wasn't the important one. John the Baptist's example was that of a humble servant that knew his role, that knew his place. So for the first application, we must recognize and accept that we are not the main attraction. Christ is. We should realize and live life with the reality that it isn't all about us. We are less than, inferior. We should be subservient to the Christ that we proclaim. We should never delude ourselves into thinking that we are more important than we are. We should rejoice in our position that we are a servant of the Most High God. We are a servant of the King, and, and even more than being a servant of the King, we are called into his family. Praise God. What a wonderful concept to ponder. But never let that distract you from the fact that this life is not intended to be about us. It isn't about our growth, our ministry, our lives, our comfort. It is about him. It's all about him. It's always been all about him. Do we live that reality out? in our relationship with other believers? Do the people that we minister alongside of say, hey, you are characterized by putting people second, but Jesus first over even your own wants and desires? Would people consistently recognize you as the kind of person that puts people second and Jesus first? Or might they become confused and think you actually value your ministry your joy, your desires and feelings more than the glory of our king. John the Baptist was, was okay with proclaiming that it wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. John the Baptist was a shining example of humility in that he understood he was not the main attraction. Jesus pointed, John pointed to Jesus, but even our example in Jesus is one of humility. Consider Philippians 2, 3 through 6. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Even Jesus' example is one of humility, of putting the interest of others first. If we claim to be followers of Christ, how dare we ever consider making this life all about us? John the Baptist wouldn't do it. Jesus wouldn't do it, and neither should we. So the first application from John's reaction in this chapter is for us to live the same way 
that we should recognize and accept that we are not the main attraction. Christ is. Next, let us consider John the Baptist's example in that he rejoiced at the ministry of Jesus, even though it meant his ministry, his importance was diminishing. John knew what was important, Jesus Christ. He rejoiced when Jesus arrived. He recognized the importance of Christ being proclaimed, Christ being made great, people being pointed to the Messiah, not being pointed to John. His joy was derived from the proclamation and presence of Christ, not when his own needs, his own wants, or his own desires were being met. The second application for us from John the Baptist's reaction is that our joy should be derived from Christ being glorified, not the fulfillment of our own selfish desires. This is a challenge for us today because there are times in our sinful selves we lose sight of where our joy comes from. We lose focus on what we should want, what we should really, really want and long for and desire. For some people, this can be evident by what they tend to dream about when they go to bed at night. Have you ever tried to force pleasant dreams by dwelling on something as you go to sleep? Some people may try to dream of winning the lottery, of finding a spouse, of getting a new job, of, of being recognized for some important accomplishment. And again, none of those things are necessarily wrong. But where should our true joy come from? Pleasing God, glorifying him. That is where our joy should emanate from as a Christian. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That is why a man should be joyful when he labors and toils at work all day. Not because the work is fun, praise God if it is, but because he does it to bring glory to God. The mother that cares for three children under the age of five, and at the end of the day, she looks like some wicked ex science experiment that's gone wrong. Her joy should emanate from glorifying God by caring for her family and raising her children, even when the Instagram perfect picture doesn't happen that day, even when her children don't draw her a pretty picture, and even when bodily fluids have infiltrated every possible stainable surface in the house, joy can be present as that act of service can be done unto Christ. This is one of the things that, I'll be honest, mystifies the world, that Christians can be joyful in the midst of hardships and sufferings and trials, even in the midst of persecution, because our joy does not come from this world, or at least it shouldn't. Our joy should be derived from heavenly things, and John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts. He had been a prominent prophet, and when he saw all of that slipping away, he was joyful. Joyful that the Messiah had appeared. Joyful that he was able to play a role that God had laid out for him. 
And he was able to fulfill that role, even though it meant he needed to become smaller so that Christ could become greater. What brings you joy? Be honest with yourself. Is it looking at the balance of your 401k? Is it contemplating the date that you'll be able to retire? Is it dreaming about some earthly accomplishment that you hope one day might, may come your way? Is it the hope for a future spouse or graduation from school or university? While none of those things are wrong, I want to tell it to you plainly, none of those things will bring lasting joy. None of those things will satisfy the soul and none of those things will bring contentment. The world knows this, although they would never want to admit it. This is why rock stars and millionaires turn to drugs or other addictions to find satisfaction. It is why so many of them end up taking their own lives, because joy is not found in such things. As John the Baptist demonstrates, joy can be had despite temporal circumstances. Even when, the, from the world's perspective, things are spiraling downward, joy can be had for a Christian when we have the right focus when our hopes and affections are properly pointed towards God. The second lesson was that John the Baptist rejoiced, was overjoyed at the ministry of Jesus, even when it meant his ministry and his importance was diminishing. Likewise, our joy should be derived from Christ being glorified, not the fulfillment of our own selfish desires. John the Baptist cared about Christ being preeminent. His focus was that Christ must become greater and he must become less. His entire ministry ended, as we learn in Matthew 14, with his head on a platter at a party thrown by Herod. Why? Because he had faithfully proclaimed the truth. And that bothered Herod who had him imprisoned. It bothered Herod's illegitimate wife that John had spoken against, and she hatched a plot to have him killed. Was this a, a tragic end for the great prophet? Was John the Baptist sad that he never got a great cathedral built out in the wilderness? No. John had fulfilled his purpose. His joy was complete because he was focused on the task that God had given him, on pointing people to the main attraction, the all-important Christ. The activities that we as Christians should pursue should honor and glorify God. They should not merely be self-focused, self-serving, comfort-seeking, easy, or calm. Because the New Testament is clear that in most circumstances, we should actually kind of expect the life of the Christian to be marked by hardship, opposition from the world, suffering, rejection, and trials. John the Baptist knew something about those. John the Baptist was satisfied in fulfilling the mission that had been given him, pointing people to Jesus. And at the end of the text, he utters, Perhaps that line, which should be the motto of every Christian that is ever involved in seeking to honor God in ministry, he must increase, I 
must decrease. Here's John the Baptist, the first prophet in 400 years known throughout all of Israel, the one whom Jesus himself said was the greatest man who had ever lived, who by all rights had the ability to have everybody focus on himself. But he said, I must decrease so that he can increase. Remember the story that I told of my tour guide? Of how effective he was because he understood that he wasn't the center of attention, but he facilitated. He enabled me and my family to focus on that which mattered. That was an example of what John was doing. That is an illustration of what each one of us should be doing. Our focus, our lives should be centered around getting people to know, getting people to understand, to focus on the main attraction of the universe, Jesus Christ. We need to be pointing people to him all the time with our words, with our actions, with the way that we interact with family, with the way that we interact with strangers, with the way that we act when things are going well, with the way that we act when things aren't going very well. We should be conveying the message, hey, look over there. Look at Jesus. Look at what he has done. Look at who he is. If we live that way, we shouldn't. We couldn't be focused on getting people to think that it's all about us. Today, we examined the behavior of the disciples of John the Baptist, and I provided two admonitions that we should be concerned about. First, that we not allow any activity, even religious activity, to become our primary focus instead of God. Second, I went a little farther and warned that beware when sinful behaviors present themselves in the guise of pursuing Christian activity. Then, we discussed two lessons that we could take from John the Baptist's example. Just as John recognized that he was not the center of attention or the main attraction, we must also accept and recognize that we are not the center of attention. Then we observed that John's joy was not determined by his circumstances, the worldly recognition of his status or the number of people following his ministry. His joy was derived from Christ. In the same way, our joy should be derived from Christ being glorified, not the fulfillment of our own selfish desires. We must live a life that glorifies God, which is our highest calling. To paraphrase John, he must increase, but we, we must decrease. I ask each of you, consider your behavior your focus, the, the focus of the ministries of this body in this church, and be willing to honestly evaluate them to make sure that we have the same attitude as John the Baptist who understood that pointing people to the Messiah was everything. We must all be cautious that we don't display the attitudes of John's disciples that were so concerned with their own ministries their own activities, that they missed God's main attraction when he was right there in front of them. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful that you have been clearly proclaimed 
and that you have clearly proclaimed the truth to us, to this generation and to every other. We are grateful that we can clearly understand who Jesus is, that we might have eternal life through his redeeming work. Lord, help us as we grow and mature as servants of yours. Let us have the same attitude as John the Baptist had, understanding that the preeminence of Christ is everything, that he is the center of our worship and focus, and that we would not become distracted by our own desires, our own activities, that we would not lose sight of what really matters. Help us to focus on you and not our own pursuits. Help us to serve with the right attitudes and the right focus. Help us to point others to you with our words, with our deeds, with our interactions, with our family and our interactions with our fellow believers. In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen.